Welcome to the podcast of the New York Academy of Sciences, inspiring centuries of scientific progress. This is the first episode in a six-part series that's a little different from what you're used to hearing on the podcast. Rather than a general summary of a topic, we're going to present some whole, long-form conversations taken from Academy events. They make up a series presented by the Academy and sponsored by the John Templeton Foundation called The Physics of Everything. And these aim to present some of the most important questions in what's arguably the most obtuse, abstract, and math-heavy branch of science in a way that any scientifically curious person can join in on the conversation, whether you're a trained physicist or not. And the first of these conversations is about one of the most basic questions, not just of science, but of philosophy and even art. How much do we really know? And how much are we capable of knowing? You might define science as the quest to understand how everything works. And lurking behind that is a pretty big assumption that it's possible to understand how everything works, that there are rules and principles behind everything in the universe, and that we as human beings are capable of learning those rules and maybe even manipulating them. And no branch of science is more obsessed with the definition of underlying rules and principles than physics. Now, you could define physics, if you wanted to simplify it like crazy, as the study of how things move and use energy. At every scale, from how our microscopic building blocks move and interact with each other, to what happens when you throw a ball up in the air, to how planets and stars travel through the universe. And there was a time when the general consensus in science was that these were questions that were very soon going to be answered completely. Right around the turn of the 18th century, Isaac Newton discovered some fundamental laws of motion and thermodynamics and devised a new kind of math for describing them, called calculus. And for a long time, more than two centuries, it seemed like these rules had all the answers in them if we could just apply them correctly. For example, at the turn of the 20th century, one of the most famous scientists in the world was a guy named William Thompson. We know him better as Lord Kelvin, the title he took when he became the first scientist to be honored with a British peerage for his work. And in 1900, he addressed the British Association for the Advancement of Science and said, quote, there is nothing new to be discovered in physics now. All that remains is more and more precise measurement. In other words, we know all the rules that govern the universe. We just haven't collected all the data yet. But then, five years later, an unknown Swiss patent clerk named Albert Einstein showed that this just wasn't true. That Newton's laws weren't complete. They didn't accurately describe the motion of things in outer space. And then a few years after that, a group of scientists, including Max Born and Werner Heisenberg, showed that Einstein's relativity theory was incomplete too, and physics was thrown into a turmoil that has more or less lasted until today. The topsy-turvy world of quantum mechanics, black holes, string theory, strange quarks, and the Higgs boson. And so now, in 2016, knowing what we know now and what we know we don't know now, Let's re-examine that most fundamental of questions. How much are we really capable of knowing? 
So here, in its entirety, is a panel discussion held at the Academy on Tuesday, April 5th, 2016, called What Does the Future Hold for Physics? Is There a Limit to Human Knowledge? Your moderator is Dr. Jill North, a professor of philosophy at Rutgers University, and I'll let her introduce the rest of the panel. So we're here today to discuss first the incredible amount of information that physics has uncovered in particular over the past few decades to extend our knowledge to the edges of the universe. Second, whether at the same time those advances have revealed certain limitations on how far this knowledge can extend. And third, whether we must or should or may go outside of physics to fill in any remaining epistemic gaps in order to explain everything about the universe. So I'm very happy to welcome our three distinguished panelists who will be discussing these issues tonight. So let me introduce them in turn. Vijay Balasubramanian is the Kathy and Mark Lasry Professor of Physics at the University of Pennsylvania. His research is in two different fields, string theory, including the physics of black holes and whether they destroy information, and theoretical neuroscience, including the computational principles underlying the architecture of the brain's neural circuits. He has also discussed problems having to do with statistical inference and Occam's razor, the trade-off between simplicity and accuracy in our mathematical models. He was born in Bombay, raised in India and Indonesia, and came to the United States for college. He has earned degrees in physics and computer science at MIT and received two patents in artificial intelligence. After finishing his PhD in physics at Princeton, he was a junior fellow at the Harvard Society of Fellows, and he has been a visiting professor at the CUNY Graduate Center, Rockefeller University, and the Free University of Brussels. I would phrase this question maybe in a slightly different sure. way. Sure. Right? So I think it's obvious that we as humans, with our finite resources, finite selves, yes. and all these kinds of things, Good. obviously are not going to measure everything. It's just not possible. So really, the scientific method from the beginning has been about making some small number of measurements of something, uh, then making a relatively simple model that we can contain within our heads, which are not that big, <laughs> of those things, mm -hmm. and then betting that you can extrapolate that very far from mm -hmm. the measurements that you made and somehow get something that works over a much larger range. That sounds now, like pretty broad knowledge. Yes, and yes. that okay. is the method that's succeeded so spectacularly. This, this is how we've done science, and it's worked great. Yes. Now, I think the question of this panel is whether somehow that kind of extrapolation has limits, whether you mm. can't, you know, somehow from this extrapolation from finite things, you can never get there. And there are reasons to think yes, mm -hmm. and the reasons to wonder maybe uh, the answer is, uh, in fact, there is no limit. I, I, okay. I actually think the answer is not obvious. Okay. Right, so what I mean by that is that in general, usually, you know, if you have some complicated thing in the world, mm -hmm. you can usually approximate it over some range of that uh, over which that thing works mm -hmm. uh, you, with a simple model that kind of works well, but then it'll go wrong eventually. And usually what we do is we try to find where it goes wrong and then try to fix it. But it's possible, right? But in fact, for some reason, the universe is finite in some f fundamental sense, mm -hmm. and that if you collect enough pieces of data, it's possible to extrapolate it all the way if you couple this with some notion of mathematical consistency or something like that. It's possible. Right. Okay. So I think the verdict is out, in my opinion. Eva Silverstein is a professor of physics at Stanford University. She earned her undergraduate degree in physics at Harvard and her PhD in physics at Princeton. After finishing her PhD, she held a postdoctoral position at Rutgers, joining the faculty in the physics department at Stanford in 1997. In 1999, she won a MacArthur Award. 
Her research includes investigating the predictive mechanisms for early universe inflationary cosmology, accounting for its sensitivity to quantum gravity, tested by current and near-term cosmic microwave background data. This has led to a more significant, a more systematic understanding of durational signatures. She's also pursued the wider development of quantum field theory and string theory, including the mechanisms for a cosmological constant, black hole horizon dynamics, and duality symmetries. Um, I thought before getting to the bad news about the limits on our knowledge, we could start with some good news about some recent examples of the successes from physics in extending our knowledge about the world. Um, and I thought maybe Eva could begin with that, um, since early universe cosmology seems a good example of that. Indeed, early universe cos cosmology is a great example of both, I would mm -hmm. say because it's just amazing how much has been learned empirically, you know, in partnership with theory about the origin of structure in the universe. And there's a very successful theory of that which um, pr pr predicts that it is accounted for by essential quantum fluctuations in an accelerating, expanding universe um, early on, known as inflation. And you know, there are detailed observations of the microwave background radiation, which is radiation that comes to us from almost 14 billion years ago and um, has imprinted on it the very primordial fluctuations that we think came from, again, just the Heisenberg uncertainty principle at work in the early universe. Um, and the data on this, this cosmic light is so precise that we can use it to understand, to test in much more detail the mechanism behind this inflationary paradigm um, up to a point. But uh, there is a fundamental limit on it, which in fact has to do essentially with the same thing. The essential quantum fluctuations are a source of noise in the, in the measurement. Um, it's kind of like experimental noise, except it's quantum mechanical noise that's just irreducible. This is called cosmic variance, and it limits our our ability to come to you know, arbitrarily precise conclusions in okay. early universe physics. So it's a great uh, subject in, in illustrating both points at once, I okay. think. Yeah. And the good news is that, so even from the limited information we can gain now, by making observations now about the cosmic microwave background, we can predict, infer things about billions of years ago, about the very early universe. It's You're saying to, to ex amazing accuracy. It's incredible. Yeah, yes, it's okay, great. I guess you were also then getting to my next question, which is time to turn to the bad news about where there might be limitations on our knowledge um, about the world from physics. Um, and I guess I want to know more about other examples that your research might have uncovered about uh, that have revealed in principle or in practice limitations on our knowledge. Um, and I thought maybe Neil could start here since it seems like the nature of dark matter is a good instance of maybe something that's beyond our epistemic grasp. Yeah. Neil Weiner received his undergraduate degree in physics and mathematics from Carleton College and a PhD in physics from the University of California at Berkeley. After finishing his postdoctoral training at the University of Washington, he joined the faculty of the physics department at NYU in 2004. He has broad interests in particle physics and cosmology. His research focuses on physics beyond the standard model, including, among other things, studies of dark matter, extra dimensions, supersymmetry, and grand unification, as well as the relationships between those different subjects. 
recently has been engaged in developing ideas related to dark sectors, where dark matter has its own interactions beyond gravitational, and the implications for the ongoing search for dark matter. He's currently the director of the Center for Cosmology and Particle Physics at NYU. Yeah, well, so, so I think we have to be very you know, careful when we talk about what's good news and, and bad news. Sure. Uh, because limit, I, I, as long as they're interesting questions, uh, I mean, in some sense, if we actually figured out everything out, that would be bad news. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, we'd be out of a job, for instance. Um, but as we've learned more and more about the universe, we've really come to understand how much out there is thing, are things that we don't know. Mm -hmm. um, and so since we know we don't know these things, we can ask whether we know we will ever know what they are, <laughs> or whether we can know whether we'll ever know. And the answer to those questions is yes and no, I think. Um, so, so it, yes it, and no is, is the one answer to each of those questions? Yes and or no yes? is to one. I'll, but we'll get there. OK. <laughs> I actually have forgotten yes myself. Yes point. No's and no's and yes's and no's. Um, <laughs> Uh, and known unknowns and unknown knowns. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, 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 so one thing we're quite sure of at this point is that in looking at, at using the CMB data that, that he was talking about, among other sources, uh, we can determine the <coughs> constituents of the, the universe very, very precisely. And we know that if you sort of take a big box of the universe, which is several million light years across, maybe you know, 30 million light years across, uh, and you ask how much energy is in that box of each sort, you find that roughly 4% of the energy, 5% of the energy is in the form of atoms, protons, neutrons, electrons, whatever, iron, oxygen, carbon. Um, uh, about a quarter of it is in the form of dark matter, uh, which the only thing that we're really sure about is that we know that it's not protons, neutrons, electrons, atoms. Mm -hmm. And then the balance, about 70% of it is in the form of dark energy, which we really can measure, but has so far so little in the way of dynamics that it's not really clear what the origin of it, of it is, except for maybe it's just a simple cosmological constant that's in the Einstein's equation. So, so at least for me, we focus on dark matter because mm -hmm. it seems like the question which we maybe can make the greatest progress on. We know it's there. We can see its effects gravitationally. But if you want to look for it, how do you mm -hmm. look for it? Well, you can't look for it unless you know what it is. But if you don't know what it is, how can you know what it is if you haven't found it? So there's a so lot. So does of, that suggest a limit on what we can know? So if if it, so, the, the at the end of the day, what's going to what we we think is that if dark matter is of a certain category of things, then we have very good shot of learning what it is in the near term. If it's mm -hmm. a set of different categories of things, it might take a much longer amount of time to determine mm -hmm. what it is. And if it's a set of other things, we may never know what it is. Um, and we don't yet know which of those. And we don't know which of those it is. Obtain. Okay. And I don't know that we'll ever know mm. which of those it is. Which would be a limit. Which of our would knowledge. be a limit. For our <laughs> well, right, given so, your. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Well, so as an example of a place where we know not just because of human financial limitations, but maybe something a little more fundamental, we won't observe everything. Is in situations where there's a so-called horizon where. Yeah the finite speed of light prevents us from seeing behind a certain screen. Right. Um, but as Vijay says, even there, it may be <laughs> that we observe in our local region, we determine you know, a very compelling model of physics, which then has consequences for what is beyond our horizon. Yes. Right. And although we would not ever get to empirically test that, it might 
you, you could imagine a situation where mathematical yeah. sort right. of you may be compelled thought experimental consistency to, right. to declare that it had to be that way on that yes. side. That's right, right, possible. Right. 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 Mm -hmm. So you know, experimentalists use what they call null tests to make they slice mm -hmm. their data in different ways, make sure they could come to the same conclusion. Mm -hmm. You know, in our in our mathematical theories, we do something very similar. We yeah. we make sure that the predictions work the you know work the same. However, we organize the calculation, and right. you know, there are you know powerful thought experimental constraints that we can employ. And, and I think we'd all three agree that it's better to proceed under the assumption that you can make this extrapolation to try <laughs> rather than, than to just to not give do up. it because it's worked. So yes. we should keep doing it. I wanted to ask, given your work on black hole information loss, is that an example of an in-principle limitation on our knowledge? There's so, information you know, loss. So I've, I've written papers uh, uh, yeah. claiming that information is recovered. Ah, and in okay. fact, I would say that a lot of the work, so if information is actually lost mm -hmm. in black holes, mm -hmm. that is to say stuff goes in, then evaporates away, then there's in fact an inconsistency in the laws of physics. Because quantum mechanics, at its foundations, uh, basically has as a postulate that information is not lost. Mm -hmm. There's a technical principle you include to make sure information is not lost. Right? And then, so then, um, so in fact, one of the struggles of, since the discovery of, of Hawking in the 70s mm -hmm. has been to somehow either, you know, what, what can you do? You either have to replace general relativity that predicts black holes, you have to replace quantum mechanics that, you know, works with lots of stuff, mm -hmm. or you have to find a way in, in, uh, in which your conclusion that information was lost was misled. So you know, since my, th my PhD thesis, you know, a lot of my work has been about showing ways in which, in which information could be recovered. And I would say the dominant mm -hmm. view in the field is now that there's a mistake in the reasoning mm -hmm. concluding that information is lost. In fact, it's recovered. So that's a not in that sense. Um, so uh, it's still an in-principle limitation to the yeah. human ability sure. to recover it, because the information would come back in this giant uh, scrambled fashion mm -hmm. that no individual with finite resources could recover. But really, I don't think the interesting part of our question today is whether I no. personally can recover it. It's whether the universe can recover it. That's a different question. It's an in-principle question. Right, that's right. I oh. think Neil disagrees with that. Well, so. I, th I, think that, I think that you can sort of take, you can extrapolate what Vijay is saying and, and, and extend it that there are sort of a, different types of, of knowledge, right? There's the, mm -hmm. there's the, the laws of physics mm -hmm. that uh, maybe we hope that we can consistently get to from a finite set of, of experiments as well as some principles like mathematical consistency. And then there's some questions about what's actually out there. Mm -hmm. What made that black hole? What made our universe? Things like this. And so there are different types of limits to our knowledge in these different types of questions. Mm -hmm. So maybe Eva and Vijay are smart enough, and they're going to figure out the fundamental laws of string theory, and it's all going to be there. But even if they do, it may be that we will not have all the information about what the history of the universe has been. Mm -hmm. uh, we may not be able to determine all of those things. There's like mm -hmm. the universe. One of the great things about the universe is it's been this wonderful state of thermodynamic equilibrium, which has <laughs> made it so that we can calculate a lot of things, like looking at the cosmic microwave background. Um, but the downside of the thermal equilibrium is that it erases a lot of information. And uh, so we've also lost a lot of information. There could have been a tremendous number of interesting things going on in the universe that are just, just gone. And mm -hmm. we'll never know. Mm -hmm. But these are different types of limits. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we confront them in different ways. What sorts of different ways do you? Well, I mean, take, take, take for instance, the, the, the Higgs boson. Mm -hmm. I think the Higgs boson is a fantastic example of exactly this mm -hmm. idea of mathematical consistency. Yeah. 50 years ago, you're looking at quantum field theory. You see that you're going to have these particles in it, that massive gauge bosons. And you say, but the only way that 
you can figure out how to make a consistent theory as to include the existence of a mm -hmm. new particle, the Higgs boson, or something like it. Mm -hmm. And it takes you a long time uh, to look for it. But at the end of the day, you go out, you run the Large Hadron Collider, and you find it. I think the sort of interesting twist on that question is, what if we never built the Large Hadron Collider? <laughs> would you believe that there was a Higgs boson? Mathematical right. consistency would have right. told you that it would be there. You might believe your theory uh, very, very strongly. But will you say you know there's a Higgs boson if you've not found it? I probably right. would have said no. Right. Uh, yeah, go ahead. So I think um, uh, another interesting kind of potential limitation, actually one that I worry about, actually, is that um, you know a cat can't understand calculus. Right. So there's no a priori reason right. why the human brain is capable of producing the representations of knowledge right. necessary to understand the universe. Right. We seem to be so lucky as to be able to do that. Right. So uh, there might great. be a posteriori reason. So maybe that's or, true, but hope. it's not obvious. So, <laughs> no, that's so I think true. so that's something that uh, so part of the reason I work in this other field. Yes. Yes. Is part, because I'm interested in this question ah. of what kinds of formal representations can the can you know circuits of the kind we have outside our head make, and okay. does that pose a limit to what so we can So are there know? particular limits oh, that's not theoretical known. neuroscience? <laughs> Even that's not known. Okay. <laughs> that's an unknown unknown? Unknown or? unknown, <laughs> I would say. But, but it's interesting, right? Because you know, if you look at the theories we make in physics, they're really mostly kinds of springs and bouncy balls kind of st strung together. And then you solve that, and you sort of make a coarse description of that, mm -hmm. and you string that coarse mm -hmm. description together in more bouncy balls and springs, and you keep right. going like that. And that's presumably because, you know, we uh, are unable to create more complex things that we can solve right. inside our heads. Well, it seems like the other example you gave of black hole physics. Well, hopefully it's not. That. Hopefully it's not an example that that we of something where we won't be smart enough to solve it. Uh -huh. But it's it's a paradox that remains. So indeed, as I think most people agree that it's uh, true that information is recovered, but that doesn't solve the whole problem. That in fact raises essentially as many questions as it solves. Mm. Um, as we you know, have yeah, been grappling right. with for, for years. Um, so paradoxes like that are a mm -hmm. huge uh, tool that we have, really. Um, and something in that problem, something has to give. And it's, it's essentially guaranteed to be something interesting. It's interesting we to have, call we it have a different, tool. We uh, have different views of what the conservative approach yes. to that problem is. <laughs> ah, um, I'll okay. tell you what the conservative approach is, but people, you know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but uh, people really disagree. And it's kind of ironic. I, I would say that some of those who are most engaged in quantum information studies are most um, willing to entertain the possibility that it's quantum mechanics that gives. Whereas, you know, I think that's crazy, and I think that uh, huh. it's more pedestrian to just approach the problem by trying to calculate the first place that general relativity breaks down, and that's a more subtle mm -hmm. question than than you might think. But it's a it's a place where we are currently limited by our our lack of intelligence, I would yeah, say. Yeah, I would say that too. <laughs> okay. that there's something that's missing in the way we're thinking about it. Yeah, okay. yeah so we'll learn something if we, if we get past right. that. Uh -huh, uh -huh. <laughs> Before moving on to a different type of question, I wanted to go back. Eva, you mentioned um, discovering limitations on what we can know about early universe cosmology. I just wanted to hear a little, or have us hear a little more about that. Um, oh, I That went very quickly. Certainly. So I was talking about the fluctuations in the microwave background that we observe. Yeah. And those fit with this pristine six-parameter model of cosmology, which agrees with the kind of most basic version of this inflationary cosmology idea, okay. where, where, well, the idea of that has to do with trying to understand why, first of all, the, this radiation is nearly uniform, um, which uh, 
can be better understood through this accelerated expansion of the early universe, but that phase has to end. So you have to transition from that to the more prosaic, decelerating expansion that we observe mm -hmm. in later cosmology. And just that point that you need a transition um, introduces a new quantum field, a new quantum mm -hmm. variable in the universe, which, which, which varies over space-time. And that variable can't help but, but have quantum fluctuations. Um, and it's those fluctuations that we think seeded the structure that we see. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, those fluctuations mean that all we see is one realization of a, of a random, yes. a, of approximately a Gaussian random field. And so um, it's, I love this example just because it illustrates both of these, yeah, these points. Yeah, that's great. Um, we are currently engaged in trying to make the best of this pristine, precise data that cosmologists collect to test you know, more detailed ideas for mechanisms for inflationary cosmology, which introduce higher statistics and so on in, okay. those, um, in those higher correlations in that uh -huh. radiation. And um, it's a really interesting question. It actually is related to one of the other things that Vijay brought up, which is the dichotomy between Occam's razor and kind of genericity. Yeah. And those, that dichotomy in the context of this beautiful but limited data set mm -hmm. makes for a very interesting challenge of how best to systematically you know, uh, search for constraints on new physics, um, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. given the limitations um, and the space of you know, possible theories of early universe cosmology, mm -hmm. which is an mm -hmm. ongoing exercise. So. Right. There's, okay. there's sort of an application of this idea to, to dark matter that I, uh -huh. I think yeah. is, is sort of is relevant, which is that I, I like to imagine this uh, a professor made out of dark matter. <laughs> and uh, this professor uh, is uh, and doing research. The lectures research. have no effect because <laughs> he, they, they talk and nobody hears them. Well, they, 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 Unlike ordinary, the, lectures. unlike ordinary lectures. Unlike ordinary lectures. The but professor this, falls in love with a visible professor. And <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's the sequel. Uh, start but the, the idea is that you would start with, imagine a professor made out of dark matter who's doing research and is looking at the cosmic neutrino background and sees these tiny fluctuations in the cosmic neutrino background and uh, realizes that there's 4% of the energy density of the universe which is made out of something else. And you can imagine that she's coming up for tenure, and she's going to be her great achievement. And she writes down a, a theory of uh -huh. the universe, and she says, OK, here's my theory. I'm going to take uh, quantum chromodynamics, electroweak. I'm going to take a U1. I'm going to combine them all together. I'm going to have three generations of quarks and leptons and neutrinos, neutrino masses. I'm going to have a Higgs field. I'm going to combine them together. I'm going to make composite objects. I'm going to make those protons and neutrons. I'm going to combine them together and make electrons. Or it's not electrons out of the composite objects. I'm going to take the electrons, combine them together, make <laughs> atoms. I'm going to build those things up. And then that is going to be this 4% of the universe. And you know that they're going to say she's crazy. You don't want anybody like this representing her department. Um, and it's this idea, right, which is that if you were actually looking at the universe that is our tiny sliver mm -hmm, of it, mm -hmm. and you insisted on applying Occam's razor to it, you would never come up with mm -hmm. the description of the universe that actually is. You would insist on something which is very, very simple, and you describe it in the simplest number, the, the fewest number of parameters you could. And mm -hmm. in fact, the universe is full of complexity. And so something like the early universe, where uh, Eva and some of her, her, her colleagues have done tremendous work in you know, illustrating exactly how much of 
that interesting physics that could have been there actually gets represented in the observables is, 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 is a critical and interesting question because yeah. we're going to describe it as simply as we can, but that doesn't mean that's actually the right description. Right. right. I mean, the challenge here is that you can, of course, make many, many, many more complex theories that will fit the limited data that we have. Right. And then you have no selection rule. And so we use Occam's razor as a rule of thumb, mm -hmm. basically, to guide us through this maze. Right? I mean, uh, get, and, and I, I'm just constantly surprised it works, right? I mean, to the extent that it does. <laughs> you mean that right? Occam's razor that, yeah, that we've succeeded works. reasonably yeah. well so yeah. far, right? I yeah. mean, it's just kind of, uh, because as you say, there's many more complex possibilities, right? You know, given, given the visible sector of matter that we've seen so far, you could imagine lots of different kinds of dark sectors, I imagine. You're the expert. Uh, right, but of course his point was from the other side, you would not think the standard model is, very, is as yeah, simple as it could be. So it's very oh, no, simplicity is related to. So, so Neil, isn't, isn't yeah. there a slightly more hopeful finding clever new experimental ways of detecting these various pretty complicated possibilities, or at least at least a variety of different possibilities for dark matter, things like axion detection? Yeah, well, I think this is one of the, the, the wonderful things is when you take yourself a little bit away from Occam's razor and you start embracing the complexity, mm -hmm. uh, then you have new avenues for uh, looking for that complexity. If you never even consider it, mm -hmm. then how do you know how to even look for it? Mm -hmm. uh, and so there are all sorts of, of different models of, of, of dark matter, and, and one that is, is very popular called the Axion, and some colleagues of, of EVA have done really tremendous work uh, in and thinking about how to look for it, and, and something that you wouldn't know, but say now you have LIGO out there looking for these black holes, and they're spinning down, and they're going to collide, and you're going to hopefully build up a large population of them. And, and by measuring their spins, they would tell you that if you look at all their spins, you're going to see a specific mm -hmm. uh, spot where those spins just aren't, aren't there. And that will be a sign, for instance, of, of uh, this sort of a dark matter. Uh, so uh, if you if you stick to this idea of simplicity, mm -hmm. then sometimes you can miss. Good. And, and actually, many, you have all these interesting models that have undergone tests uh, from dark matter experiments. Yeah, uh, so far, the second uh, best possible tests. thing empirical has happened, tests for sure. ah. which is that they've been excluded. Right, so I want to okay. take this opportunity to um, promote null results as yes. scientifically yes. interesting because they Explain are. Explain what a null result is. Well, it doesn't just, mean zero. There's, there's some parameters. Well, that's yeah. sort of the point. There's some parameter space. There's an origin in that parameter uh -huh. space, which we call zero. And often that is a well-defined thing. Um, but you know, as long as the experiment works, you learn something either from detecting a non-zero value of this mm -hmm. parameter or mm -hmm. excluding some range of the parameter, mm -hmm. which is more often what okay. happens, a constraint. Yeah. But as long as the theory motivating the experiment is well defined, you, you learn something, you know, crucial from yes. that. And I think that yes. happens I take it the all over the place. Michelson-Morley experiment would be a key isn't that sort of the paradigmatic <laughs> that's, that's, null result yes. that's really informative? Well, yeah, right. And it's you know it's best when the theory could have been right. It's all mathematically consistent, yes. at, at least in some low energy description. That's right. Yeah. And yeah. therefore, okay. we learn a lot by excluding it. Yes. Um, oh, that's, yeah. These, that's were, these really are very helpful. clever, interesting yeah. theories. Yeah. Um, that's and very I'm not sure of the current yeah. status, I, but I, you know, the, yeah. the primary engine of science progressing is stuff being shown wrong. Right. I mean, right. Uh, but right. it's very Exclude useful. Especially the more interesting the thing is that you show wrong, the more useful the result is yes, in some sense. And so yeah. so okay. that happens. Although there's more still a worry if you rule out some stuff, but there's still many, many, many theories left consistent with the data. 
And then it seems yes. like you want some Occam's razor principle or something yeah. to narrow things down. I mean, that goes back Certainly, to this extrapolation yeah. thing, right? We have yeah. some finite number of data points yeah, uh, right. for anything. Right. That's all we'll ever have. And we need some rule for extrapolating from them. Yes. And again, the Occam's razor thing really is sort of, it's sort of a rule of thumb for, well, you know, make the minimal extrapolation. But as you point out, that can be completely wrong, right? And, and, right. and uh, so, so I don't, I haven't managed to, I mean, we use terms like, that's a beautiful theory, right? Mm -hmm. We use the aesthetics mm -hmm. of the theory according to our sense of the coherence of the thing and, you know, how compelling it is in some way to help guide us pick out of the many choices that we have. And I've never been able to, I, I do that all the time. All my friends do it all the time, right? <laughs> uh, but I've never been able to articulate exactly what makes the theory uh, compelling in mm. that way, right? That you feel like you haven't added too much but you've added enough yes. that, that's probably an interesting description of the world. Right, so one idea people like a lot is the idea of symmetry. And, yes, you know, yes. Um, right. And uh, opinions vary on that. Yeah. But it's a, opinions again, again you can just make that, it. Uh, on whether symmetry is a, a virtue? Well, just how compelling a certain yeah, application of symmetry might I mean, be. But, but I, I, what I like about it is simply I mean, that it is sim simply is, that. is. The so, Greeks insisted. Uh -huh that everything had to be spherical, right? Right. right? And then right. that went all the way down, yes. caused yes. all kinds of problems yeah, yeah. for so, 2,000 so, years. Right, you right? can go so far with symmetry. Right, right. right, so that's, I think, thank you for, for that, because yeah. I've been a little bit um, more hesitant than many of my colleagues about the idea of supersymmetry, because mm. it has some great arguments kind of from low energy physics. From the point of view of string theory, I think there's, you know, if anything, the evidence goes the other way. Um, and it's, I love this example because it's sort of like in mecha learning mechanics. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I don't know history, so I can't go back to the Greeks in such an erudite way. But if you just go back to your high school physics class, you learn you you know you can you learn how to solve problems with spherical symmetry yes, first. Right. But right. that doesn't mean it's a principle of nature that you should right. grandly Good. extrapolate. Good. That's helpful. But it may well be the right idea. It uh -huh. it it is beautiful. It mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. Um, and what I like about it more, just more prosaically, is that it's just a mathematically well-defined thing that you can you know, set up mm -hmm. the constraints that follow from some symmetry and then test them. And we okay. do that in many Good. contexts. Although, although we yeah. do know very, very concrete examples of symmetry where nature clearly takes advantage of it. Uh, for which is, for which sure. Is, which for is sure. the gauge symmetries of the standard right. model. We right. know that okay. the fact that there are three colors of quarks and that that, that is a, 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 a deep uh, symmetry that, yeah. that, that nature finally is, is, is critical to our understanding of, right. of, uh, of quantum chromodynamics <laughs> and that for the weak force as well and for electromagnetism. So uh, unlike the Greek spheres, that suggests a deep principle of symmetry that's well, a the pro the thing is good we find one. out a thousand years from now that, that was uh, approximately yes. <laughs> some way. I don't know. But, there, there's, but there's, no, there's, no, there's no one size fits all answer to these no, things. There's no right. ideology to, right. to be sure right. of. I mean, right, sort of. Yeah, so, so yeah. I think this Check is actually a good, good contrast because yeah. supersymmetry, which is this idea that if you have a fermion like an electron, there should mm -hmm. be some partner particle, a selectron, right. Right. that we have not seen. Um, uh, yet, uh, is a different kind of symmetry mm -hmm. from the symmetries that we know nature mm -hmm. employs at least in some approximation, yes. right? So we know mm -hmm. at least at some approximation these gauge symmetries are used mm -hmm. by at least three times. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and we don't know that supersymmetries use a different type of symmetry. So, mm -hmm. so you can't, yeah, as, as, as you was saying, you can't use it for mm -hmm. everything, but at least if you told me that there's another gauge symmetry of the universe, I would not be surprised because I've seen three of them so far. Right. If okay. you told, told me there's supersymmetry, that would be a, a, 
qualitative change in our understanding. Okay. It's great. Yeah, it's a, it, whichever way it goes with the test of the idea of supersymmetry, it's, it's great. Because uh -huh. <laughs> either it's confirmed or we pass through the weak scale where it's most you know, motivated. And we learn that it wasn't. And you know, again, again that would be an example too, of it. other options that we can focus on then, right? <laughs> well, right. And to me, it, it you know, might not mm -hmm. be surprising from other points of view. So, right. so okay. the point is the null result is extremely interesting. It should yeah. not be considered no, that's a, really a, good you know, point. a disappointment. Right, um, right. Um, so some of the, what you've been saying is sort of already answering one question I wanted to ask you, but let me ask it anyway and see if it brings some new thoughts, which is just um, when we're discussing the limitations on human knowledge, presumably we have in the background some conception of what human knowledge is or what it takes for us to know something, especially in the scientific realm. So I'm wondering about your thoughts on what it takes. Um, and in particular, does it require a certain kind of amount of empirical data or information? Um, Occam's razor principles can get sort of give us information about which theory is true, and so some knowledge. What does it take to have a, a human knowledge of a scientific theory? Well, I think we could science. give you examples like what Neil was just talking about, where there's some part of, part of particle physics that everybody believes has been confirmed. Okay. The measurements have been done. It's always going to be that the yes. empirical measurements, you know, just taken literally, are only on a set of measure zero of the theory. But quantum field theory predicts how to evolve over different energy scales. Mm -hmm. And say quantum chromodynamics is a great mm -hmm. example. Um, where so empirical test might be the gold standard. But there's other well, even criteria when it is, that play a it, role. It, even when it is, the, th the theory is the thing that's giving you most of the. Uh, yeah. Actually, I'm not sure I understand the question. Okay. Uh, because uh, I thought I understood the question, but then the examples you got, you were giving. Oh, sure. So sure. when you say, do you mean when you say, what does it take to have human knowledge? Do you mean inside my head? Do you mean no, uh, writable uh, on a piece of paper? Good. I in mean, principle, in the sense, extrapolatable. You know. Uh, that's a very good question. Um, I don't know. I have an answer. I just sort of had in mind. What does it take to know something such that we can talk about the limits on that or not on that knowledge? Um, that's sort of an open-ended. So you know, what is human knowledge such that, such that there could be limits on it or not? If human knowledge has to do with, if what we can know about the world has to be empirically testable or empirically confirmed, then there seems like there are clear limits on what we can know, for instance, about the multiverse if it exists or something like that. So, but if there's other sorts of criteria that could play a role in what we know, then maybe like mathematical elegance or something like well, that. Well, I think we, we did touch on that earlier, so let me just say it yeah. one more time quickly yeah. in case it helps. In the, the multi, people get very exercised about the multiverse. Yeah. It's an interesting idea. It's yeah. no more speculative than the universe hypothesis because sure. they both have to do sure. with what's outside <laughs> our visible horizon. Yes, good. But you know, it's it is speculative no matter. Good. However, the optimistic scenario would be that, and this is not we're nowhere near to this practically mm -hmm. speaking. Mm -hmm. But the optimistic scenario would be that we test our theory of physics that we can observe locally yes. and that the, that theory has the further consequence yes, of a multiverse, right. say, right. or a universe. Um, we're not there yet, but that's, that a, that's an open possibility. Knowledge of the world. Uh, I, right. I guess you're asking whether to say that we know something requires also presenting an avenue for testing the correctness of that knowledge. Is that, is that what you're saying? Yeah. Right, and that if, if you say something that's not testable, it doesn't constitute knowledge. 
or that, that's the question world, is whether you would agree with that kind of thing. And I, I take it most of you don't agree with that, that there are other routes to knowledge. For instance, whether the best theory that predicts the testable stuff, if it has a certain consequence, like the existence of a multiverse, that would count as a kind of knowledge of the world. This is very difficult to answer yeah. in the abstract, yeah, I think. Sure. Um, okay. And, and, and let me go back to the Higgs boson example. Yeah. Because uh, that was a very, very concrete theory that was written down. It has all sorts of aesthetic issues uh, that uh, we can go on and on, and you know, the field has gone on and on mm -hmm. about uh, that let us believe that it's uh, unsatisfactory for, for various reasons. But in terms of predictive power, it's very, very good. And in terms of predictive power so far, except for dark matter and gravity and neutrino masses, it's mm -hmm. been spot on, um, and inflation. Um, and so you, even many, many years ago, you would have expected that the Higgs boson would be there. But at the same time, you can write down a theory where there are two Higgs bosons that combine together and, and do the same work. Or where the Higgs boson is not itself a fundamental particle, but more like the proton is built out of something else, mm -hmm. as opposed to in the theory where it's written down as a fundamental particle. And you know, all the physicists would agree that mathematical consistency requires that something like the Higgs boson should be mm -hmm. there. But that doesn't tell you that you know the Higgs boson is there or that you're ever going to find something that is so what they found. So that's not enough, right. So, so, so there's, that's a, a situation where mathematical mm -hmm. consistency really did force you mm -hmm. into a, a direction. Okay. But it didn't force you into a unique direction. Okay, good. And in, in those sorts of situations, it's not obvious what mm -hmm. to do. I, I agree. So okay, can I expand upon that? Please. So when I was a kid, I read every book in my school library that I could get my hands on mm -hmm. and thought that when I grew up, I would know everything. Uh -huh. right? <laughs> and uh, then I grew up and, and realized that I wouldn't, yes, exactly. <laughs> I realized I wouldn't know everything. So I made peace with myself by knowing that I knew a route to, at that point, I was an undergraduate, uh -huh. uh, a route that I thought I could know. Yes. If I lived long enough, right? So I think I think I think let's let's separate sort of knowledge of facts and knowledge mm -hmm. of procedures. I think right. the thing that we kind of hope for is knowledge of a procedure that will, you know, in the fullness of time, allow us to reach anything that's knowable, yes. if possible. That's right. the best we can hope for, and that's I think kind of what you're talking about. That there's procedures we follow, mm -hmm. that we hope for. That you know, there's many possibilities. You hope to be able to sort them out. Maybe you can't because you know there's not enough dollars to build a long enough accelerator or something like that. But at least in principle, it's possible. And maybe one day it'll happen. So mm -hmm. so there's this. Uh, I'm just trying to go back to your question of what it means to know. It's, yeah. I mean, it's clear that there are so many things that you want, there are so many facts we'll never uncover, so many things we'll never know. But what we hope is that we know a way yes. of knowing or, well, also, or getting also there. Also, a related point would be we, we get most excited when it's about the principles, that we learn a principle that seems right. to hold. Yeah. And whether the principle of gauge interactions and quantum field theory is realized by two Higgs bosons or one is not you know, the essential point. What kind of thing do you mean? Yeah. Is that different from a law? Is it? Um, it's, um, well, it's things some kind like of guiding constraint. Well, so finiteness of the speed of light, say, or, you okay. know, uh, there are many principles in, in nature yeah. that yeah. are obeyed by every theory, every mm -hmm. model. Um, but when it comes to testing, the details of some model in some situation, you know, there are many yeah. possibilities. Yeah. So, so uh, can I expand further upon that? Sure. So, yeah. so a literary example may help. <laughs> so there's this great story by this guy Jorge Luis Borges, who's an Argentine author, called uh, Funes the Memorious. 
The way the story goes is like this. So this is Guy Funes, who's you know, hanging around and gets kicked in the head by a donkey or something. And when he wakes up, he finds that he can know each thing in its perfect exactness. He knows each number separately and all its properties, the tree outside his door in all its perfect detail, etc. So then he loses the ability to think because he doesn't need to. He doesn't need the notion of prime numbers because he knows 7 differently from 11. There's no reason to categorize them. So I would say when we talk about you know, what we mean to know, we don't actually mean knowing all these things separately. We mean a sort of categorical knowledge of the principles underlying, let's say, all the numbers or all the trees. Right? We want right. to know how trees work. Right. I'm not that in interested words, that in that guy, specific In other words, tree. that guy doesn't really have uh, so, all so, the knowledge. Exactly. Right. So, so, so he knows facts, but he doesn't have knowledge doesn't in, think have in the sense that we're talking about. So, so I, think, I think a better right. answer yeah. to your question of a principle is related to the earlier discussions we had about yeah. black holes, which are now exciting astrophysically and conceptually, as yeah. always. And there the principle is that the, the entropy is counted by the area of the horizon of the right. black hole rather right. than by a volume's worth of degrees of freedom. And this is a principle that continues to excite us and guide us and lead to puzzles like how do we apply it in cosmology and mm -hmm. so on. So, mm -hmm. um, and it's a ma major fount, uh, if you accept that as a principle, it's a major driving force mm -hmm. in pe for people who study quantum gravity in general, you know, explaining mm -hmm. how such a thing could come about. Mm -hmm. so. Although, yeah. you know, there are many, many, I mean, this is in some sense discounting the, the, the wonderful things that you can see in, in just phenomenology, yeah. uh, mm -hmm. which you would not have seen as principle, but you can look around you, we talk about, you know, black holes, merging and they're wonderful objects that exist in general relativity, but they're also wonderful objects that actually are out there. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and how they came that, and how that black hole there actually came to be is an interesting question. Yeah. So, so <laughs> right, you know, right, right. And, and, and we're not going to know the answers to, to a lot of those phenomenological questions. And that's mm -hmm. why, for instance, this question of dark matter, I don't know if we'll figure out what it is. Mm -hmm. I can tell you what it could be. Mm -hmm. I can write down the principles that would describe very, very nice models of dark matter. Mm -hmm. But See, if they don't actually describe what's out there, then, it, then, then I feel like I've missed out on something. Yeah, I agree so, with you. So I agree completely with you. But I'm, I'm busy trying to shift the definition of to know to be whatever I can know. So then I can say I know everything. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a, it's a very fair point. <laughs> so if there's time, two last questions. Um, first, given the limits on our knowledge that you've been pointing out, um, open-ended question, where do we go from here? Do we try and fill those gaps. Is there any value in going outside physics to try and answer some of these questions? Yes, Eva. Well, I don't know really what going outside physics means, yeah. but, but let me take a leap. And even though I'm not well trained in mathematics, let me m make a comment that's just for fun about yeah. the concept there, where there is a notion of undecidable propositions. Mm. Yeah, okay? great. Um, and there is one fun question is, since our physical theories are somewhat mathematical, mm -hmm. does physics ask undecidable questions? Mm. And there are some contexts where I know, I know of where math, mathematicians would say a certain thing is undecidable, things having to do with the topology of, of loops in higher dimensional manifolds, uh -huh. okay. spaces. And in our modern physical theories, that topology is not conserved. So the physical theory doesn't mm -hmm. ask that particular undecidable mm -hmm. question. Now, I have no idea if this is a general uh, result, but it's a, it's a fun question. That's a very interesting point, yeah. Um, yeah. But as a, it, uh, other than that, I, I just tend to take any proposal for how to interpret the physical world and treat it like any other physical theory and evaluate mm -hmm. it as such. In the same way. Um, 
Yeah, no, I, I, that's a very interesting point about uh, undecided. Well, we do know some questions are undecidable, and it's possible some questions about the physical world are to the extent that mm -hmm. number theory is embedded in the real world because it was derived from the real world. Maybe there are undecidable questions. That's very interesting. So I, I'm not exactly sure what it means to step outside yeah. the uh, uh, physics. So because uh, we could talk about biology, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I consider well, biology part of physics. What about stepping outside of <laughs> science? You know, one of the what do you mean by that? Maybe you can tell us. Well, I, you know, so <laughs> people and, you know, this idea of the god of the gaps, people invoke sort of extra supernatural stuff. Okay, so you explain, invoke that and then we, or, then we try to evaluate it in a similar right, way. Right, you, you tell us what it predicts for the CMB and we go and see if it fits better okay. than Lambda no, CDM, I mean, right? I mean, so, I mean, so surely, <laughs> yeah. uh, so... Uh, you know, so if you invoke a god of the gaps as being, so a deity is invoked to explain stuff that you don't mm -hmm. understand, right? <laughs> uh, to some degree, I think people have been doing that since the dawn of time. Yes. Because yes. human beings seem to have psychologically or cognitively need to have causes to explain things, right? Some, something happens, you need a cause. Mm -hmm. And then you can extrapolate mm -hmm. that from, you know, throwing a ball and breaking something. Mm -hmm. To, it rains, so you need a cause, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And now we know the rains are caused by atmospheric phenomena, so you can keep pushing this forward. Yes. You know, it may be helpful to some people, but it's not. Sh I'm not sure it's helpful as a discovery method sure. for explaining the world. I think it actually right. created a dangerous. Okay. Uh, idea. Yeah. Less yeah. us than even. I, I think that yeah. if you if if you're willing to outsource. Uh, explanation of things to something which is inherently untestable, mm -hmm. then that might prevent you from trying to pursue those questions in a way that is testable. There are plenty of things about the universe that uh, are extremely hard to understand. Quantum yeah. mechanics is a yeah. very counterintuitive theory, and if you didn't attempt to really push the limits on mm -hmm. things, maybe you would never mm -hmm. have uh, found the theories that we have. If you, mm -hmm. if, if you, even if even if it ends up being wrong, that we can explain things. Right. by the scientific method right. or by physical principles, you should at least pursue it as though you can, uh -huh. because if you don't, then you run the risk of missing out on really, really tremendous... Uh, I mean, so, so in the Enlightenment, of course, there were attempts by various philosophers, Descartes, uh, Spinoza, and mm -hmm. others, to... Uh, they, they were religious people, mm -hmm. and they were trying to be scientists, mm -hmm. and they were trying to reconcile these things. And so famously, Spinoza invokes God as a first cause. Mm -hmm. so he wants to explain everything right. in physical right. terms and then simply assign a first cause yes. uh, to God. Well, you know, uh, maybe some people find that satisfying and maybe some people find it satisfying mm -hmm. to talk about unexplained phenomena in terms of the deity. It wouldn't satisfy me, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so personally. But, but, yeah. but so as, I'm but happy as, not as, as to do that. As a specific example, <laughs> yeah. right, There's, if, if, you, if you do take this idea of, of, of a, you know, some first cause that's going to start everything, maybe you would just not take into idea, count the idea of eternal inflation, for instance. No, you right? would. You would. The first, would you? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Spinoza would have found it. He was a smart, smart guy. <laughs> he would have found a way to make God somehow be before eternal inflation. I don't know. I, 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 I didn't do it. Either, right? He did it. Yeah. So, um, I, I, you know, I'm sure there's some way to, uh, uh, look, I don't do that kind of reasoning. So, but I'm sure there's some way to come up with a, uh, origin of mm -hmm. the origin, right? Mm -hmm. you, know, you can go be, uh, before the origin, but well, it very doesn't very help me. Don't. I'm just saying that if you don't think that there's a question that needs answering, yeah. then there's no reason to go pursue it. It's not that, that Spinoza or somebody else couldn't incorporate that into their philosophy. I'm saying that if you say, I've got a satisfying answer and I don't need to pursue it, then why would you necessarily pursue it? No, but, but I think he would have said, uh, and you're the philosopher. Am I, am I doing a violence yes, to this no, guy? Yes, no, this is great, yes. Okay, so, so, so I think he would have said that everything needs an explanation and needs a physical explanation. You should explain it in the world. 
right? And that's the way he went about it, right? Because he was a natural scientist and mm -hmm, all this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But then in the end, he would have assigned a first cause because everything needed to start from something, mm -hmm. right? Whereas we would, we're happy been... to invoke tunneling from, I don't know, something else and then leave it at that. There's been recent stuff, recent books by physicists, I guess Krauss maybe one, who says, suggests that physics can explain, for instance, why there's something rather than nothing. Um, so that goes the other so, way towards optimism. Well, and, and, and even and physics sort of, can answer those sorts of questions. Well, at a limited, you know, the stuff about the origin of galaxies, the origin yeah. of structure is, is a version of that that doesn't go all the way back, but no, it's, right. it's fair it to say. Mm -hmm. um, as Vijay was just alluding to, there are, you know, quantum gravitational theories of uh, kind of space-time that, that begins out of, out of a phase that is not ordinary space-time. Right. None of these are, as far as I understand, these are kind of toy model mm -hmm. ideas mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. so far. But it's a, it's a great question. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, I, but going back to her question, um, you know, I think a more interesting question is to ask why uh, humans as a whole seem to need to invoke a deity. Mm. Right? Most that societies do, yes. uh, and there's this deep psychological need for it. Mm -hmm. Fine, mm -hmm. right? uh, but I don't think it's useful, at least to me, as a discovery method in science. Great, got it. Um, I, uh, I, assuming the two of you agree, or don't agree, silence. <laughs> I, I, I think I, if I understand what you're saying, I do. I think I agree. So. Well, a few minutes left. Um, I wanted to end on a final note of good news on a more speculative. Kind. That's good news, too. Um, okay. <laughs> well, yes. Um, going back to the initial good news, I was hoping I could hear your thoughts from each of you on what you think or hope might be the next big piece of the puzzle that physics might reveal to us. Um, I was wondering if each of you could offer some example of what you think is next on the horizon, the knowledge that physics might give us. <laughs> I'll be you very, can very, speculate. I'll, I'll be very, very pedestrian. <laughs> yes. Uh, because I am, I'm, I'm the, the, the most ground. You know, I'm not a string theorist. You were about to say the most grounded. In <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say it. Yes. <laughs> but I said it for you because you were too modest. He, he had enough empirical information to extrapolate and determine what it was you <laughs> were going to say. We should, we should <laughs> the LHC, Large Hadron Collider, yeah. is running. Yeah. Uh, they just upgraded. Uh, from uh, 8 TeV as a measure of their energy up to 13 TeV in energy. Uh, it's not just a question about how much energy they have, it's also a question of their intensity. Mm -hmm. uh, and their intensity is ramping up very, very dramatically. And they're going to explore uh, ranges of energies uh, that will potentially reveal the new principles mm -hmm. or not. Mm -hmm. And if they don't reveal those principles, that will be a very, very interesting Still thing. Interesting and if they result. do reveal those principles, um, that will be very interesting. So I think that that's something over the next, you know, four, five, ten years uh, where we're going to get a tremendous Great. amount of information. Doesn't sound pedestrian. That sounds <laughs> amazing. Just wait till you hear what. what oh, okay. Next. <laughs> well, no, no. I mean, in a, in addition to the 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 temperature fluctuations that I alluded to earlier, what I'm really excited about, and this is not a particularly original view, is gravitational waves, both okay. the ones that were just seen by the yeah. LIGO collaboration and the search for primordial gravitational waves, okay. which, again, whether it's a null result or a detection in the end, will teach us a lot about, in this case, the range of motion of the infliton field and in the early universe. And primordial gravitational the waves? The same kind of stuff that leads to the formation of galaxies, but instead the fluctuations of the geometry of the universe itself. And this is the classical gravitational waves that are predicted by Einstein's theory mm -hmm. were just you know, have been inferred you know, very concretely in, in other studies, but were recently detected 
you know, directly right. um, revealing a pair of colliding black holes, and that's going to get better and better right. with m much, many more examples and statistics to do. And you know, it remains to be seen what all will be learned from that, but it's clearly the start of something. Wonderful. Yeah. So my friends here have talked about uh, what to anticipate are going to happen for the very small and for the very big. I think some of the greatest developments are going to be in the very complex, understanding mm. the very complex, the following sense. So in quantum gravity, I think we will indeed make progress in thinking about things that have very many uh, in, uh, internal components, like, like black holes. And we will make progress in understanding their fundamental physics, things like the information loss paradox. But there's another complex, uh, sort of complexity frontier that physicists are very heavily involved in, mm -hmm. things like understanding you know, how the many, many components uh, that make up the brain produce that sort of macroscopic phenomena that's you. Yeah. Or the components of cell, that many, many molecules produce these sort of coherent behaviors of cells, these sort of emergent behaviors, if you like. So I think that's a major place where physicists, we haven't talked about that at all, because we're, all three of us are from the uh, other end of the field, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But I think that's an area where physicists are going to make really major contributions to understand that sort of, if you like, that complexity frontier of, uh, of knowledge. Great. We can thank our speakers and then open things for questions. And then there were some questions from the audience. First, someone asked about the experience of consciousness, being aware of your own existence and doing things like thinking and dreaming. Might it be possible to express that in terms of physics? And is that a question that physicists are interested in exploring? Should I take that? I think so. <laughs> okay, so, um, so full disclosure, there's a uh, basically part of my existence that I spend doing work in basically neuroscience and theoretical neuroscience, partly because I'm interested in questions of the kind that you've mentioned and reducing all of these experiential phenomena in the end to essentially arising in some way, in an emergent way, from the basic principles governing you know, uh, cells and uh, their biophysics. Um, the problem with trying to address this in a serious way is that there is no clear definition of what conscious experience means or is, so I don't know how to address it. So personally, the way I approach questions like this is the same way I approach questions in physics, right? I believe that I should be able to understand the macroscopic phenomena from how the microscopic constituents fit together. So if you're talking about the brain, which is what you were talking about, you know, there are cells, uh, neurons, they have particular properties, you should understand them, then you should understand how you fit them together to make little circuits that do whatever they do, then you make an abstraction to describe the circuit as a unit and they fit together to make bigger units and eventually you ought to be able to talk about networks of this stuff. And maybe once you get there, you will be able to talk about somehow the circuit, some parts of the circuit having a representation of itself in it. And maybe that's something like consciousness, right? That's a complete speculation the last thing that I said. Uh, but if I were to imagine a route, which I try to sometimes, for answering a question like that, <coughs> that's the route I would take. So in my own work, I'm very far from getting there. I'm still somewhere in neurons make circuits which make bigger circuits, and that's how far I personally have gotten. But the field of neuroscience is doing magic experimentally. So that's why I mentioned that I think physicists who are interested in questions like this will be able to bring our tools which are very, very good at developing descriptions of emergent behaviors in many microscopic constituents, and that we'll be able to use our tools with, with their data, with our colleagues' data, to try to shed light on questions like this. It's a long way, so don't hold your breath, but, but it's within the realm of possibility. Provided you allow me 
to define conscious experience in the terms that I <coughs> used, right? That it's somehow this is a system of circuits or whatever it is that has a representation of itself, an impoverished representation of itself within itself. If you allow me to define it in that way, then I could imagine ways of trying to address this, right? But you have to allow me to do that. Not everybody will agree with that definition that I just gave. And then I don't know. Right? It, for me, it has to be concrete. Otherwise, I can't think about it. So uh, I, you're asking one of the most difficult questions uh, in science. Right? How do you understand consciousness? So. Next, someone asked, being that we're dependent on our senses to make observations, do you as scientists ever wish that you had another sense, another way of taking information into your brain? If one could be provided by evolution, would that enhance our understanding of everything we're talking about? I, I feel like evolution has taken us into a position where it's given us a number of extra senses, actually. Not literally, um, but, but effectively. We can sense gravitational waves, not, not with, our, with our machines, not with our fingers, <laughs> yeah. but, but with the instruments that we built. But, but I mean, think, think, think about the, 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 the things that we can see and sense now, not, and it's not, 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 not literally with my, with my eyes, but uh, take for example, I think this is a, this, this, there's this wonderful thing, which is that we now know from both theory but also experiment that the sun is a copious producer of neutrinos. Neutrinos are these subatomic particles that travel nearly the speed of light, that have almost no mass. And the nice thing that people like to say is that a, a neutrino can travel through a light year's worth of lead before it bounces off of a single atom. And, um, and the, um, the sun is producing a flux of neutrinos that is going through this room right now. And the, the figure of merit is that you can take your pinky fingernail and every second, there's 100 billion neutrinos pass through your pinky fingernail. Right? So this entire room is being bathed in these neutrinos. And we, as humans, with our eyes and our hands, have never felt these things. But we have finally, after all of history, built these enormous experiments where they can see the sun in neutrinos. And you can see it at night. There's this great image from the Super Kamiokande experiment in Japan of an image of what the sun looks like of the neutrinos passing through the Earth to the experiment. So you can't see any of its optical radiation, but you can see that it's there. And this is just one example of, 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 of a new sense that we don't have. But our human ingenuity combined with taking seriously what we think about theories then tells us to go out and build something to look for neutrinos and gravitational waves and yeah, people other like to of use, people like to use this analogy a lot indeed with also with gravitational waves where they make you know they make a recording of the frequencies that appear in these detections and it kind of sounds like a chirp they call it and you know it's fun to do that but the essence of it is the machine. I agree with you. I was going to say the same thing, so I, yeah, I, really I agree like with that. Your, yeah. I really like your answer, thinking about you know, all the machines we built to detect other things outside the limits of our senses as being extending our senses. But just occurred to me, um, every actual sense that we, are, we have, right, or any animals have, is a manifestation of the electromagnetic force or sometimes the gravitational force. That's about it. Even pressures, you know, temperature, you know, all of it involves things. So maybe we only sense one thing because there's the only force that extends over some reasonable distance is the electromagnetic force. So we're just sensing the electromagnetic force in many, many different ways. 
of small things, of big things, of many things. So maybe it's not possible to have a different kind of sense. He asked me to speculate. Well, gravitational. <laughs> okay, gravitational. Neutrinos. Yeah. Well, but that's. Hey, we when don't you sense, sense them. them. No, we don't sense yeah, them. But I'm saying that in principle there are. Do you use electromagnetism in the end because it knocks off something? Oh yeah, sure. Yeah, I, I'm 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 limited to electromagnetism. Yeah. And, and not just electromagnetism. I'm limited to a fairly a narrow, narrow experience. <laughs> Even infrared radiation is, uh, or gamma ray radiation, we have to translate into something which we can represent. That's an interesting question. If you had unlimited resources to design and build an experiment, what would you do? Would you build a bigger particle collider or a bigger telescope? Or is there something else that we could be doing but aren't? I can tell you some things I would do, but uh, I would take a black hole, I would surround it, I would make it by collapsing elephants whose quantum states are carefully measured. I would surround it with a detector to catch every single photon and everything else that came out for the next uh, uh, how many billions of years it would take? 10 to the something, I don't know, some huge amount of time. And then I would test whether or not whether information was recovered from black holes. So this is a thought example. Uh, no, 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 he said I took the first part of his uh, thing. Very good. No, for sure. No. Not the I second guess part. I meant something more practical. Or uh, another thing that's going on is the kind. Well, one in, in a practical terms, at, you know, on earthly scales, people are trying to do things, right? So the LHC yeah, yeah, yeah. is an example. The gravitational wave detectors are, are examples. Right, and, and, and the brain uh, imaging projects to try to image all the neurons in the brain are examples. So people are trying to do that kind of thing. Yeah, and it does often come up. Um, I don't prefer to talk about politics either, but we, you know, the thing we would ideally do in certain circumstances is very clear scientifically. You would collect all the modes of this early universe radiation, for example, and just get all the information you can down to this cosmic variance limit, period. You would go deep into the you know, searches for gravitational waves as, as well as we know how to do, and instead you know, it always ends up being a little bit backed away from that by practical considerations, trade-offs in funding and, and so on. But we, you know, another, another thing I, I would point to, since you brought up many telescopes, there is a project going on called the Event Horizon Telescope, which is not the same as the gravitational wave detections from black hole collisions, but is uh, a project to observe the vicinity of big black holes like the one at the center of our galaxy and, and others like it. Um, and that, in, in fact, involves multiple telescopes to try and get enough resolution to see as far in, from as far in as we can. And that's, that seems to me a yeah. very exciting project that is just getting going. I mean, there's always going to be limits of this kind. I mean, society has fixed resources, or, well, not fixed, but there are limitations, and there's trade-offs that, that, that have to be made. So the whole process is designed to try to negotiate those trade-offs. It's not always rational. Sometimes it comes up with really stupid decisions. But that's the nature of the thing. Right? And we, we all participate in this. For example, with the CMB, we have developed a, a, a plan to do what's called CMB Stage 4, which is all you can really do from the ground. And then there are satellite projects. And you know, we, we try our best. I think actually one of the things that's most important in, in something like this is stability and, yes. and, and predictability, um, being able to plan and know what things are going to be built, and, and that, the, that if they do get planned for, that they actually that they get completed. Actually happen. Uh, because um, 
you know, the, I think sometimes people view scientists as very, very impatient. You know, we, we do have these, you know, sub-century um, personal horizons to have an opportunity to read all the books. <laughs> and uh, we want to read as many of them as we can, and we know that uh, if people build these experiments at a slower rate, then we're going to miss out on some of that. And you know, personally, we get sad about that. Um, but uh, but part of it is also that there are there's you know we're all physicists who you know work on the the, the fundamental you know laws of of, of of quantum field theory or or the early universe, but there are also people who build the accelerators and operate the accelerators. And they have very, very highly developed skill set that is often overlooked. And when projects get canceled, uh, sometimes though that talent can be lost. And it's not something that you can just materialize out of nothing, that these, this, this, this talent can go away. And our ability to do these experiments can actually get degraded. So having predictivity and, and, and continuity, I think, is, is very important. That's I'm, I'm willing to wait. So it'll happen at some rate. Right, and one, one thing I want to also say to this is, I think we're incredibly lucky. There's this funny lore that experimental results have taken forever, but you know we got to see the discovery of the cosmological constant, uh, you know, accelerator results, which especially if you're like me and you appreciate both null results and discoveries, it's been it's been good, and you know again the gravitational wave discoveries and all the all of what's going on is is happening in my view relatively quickly. I mean, if you look back. Uh, you know, Maxwell's prediction of electromagnetic radiation took 25 years to be measured by Hertz. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this detection that we keep talking about of the gravitational waves was, you know, based on a theory that it's 100 years old. And that's a really fun fact, but tells you <laughs> that, you know, it's nothing new for things to, to take a while. But, you know, we've been lucky enough to have, you know, certain theoretical yes. models be testable on, you know, the five-year scale instead, which is, you know, it's a testament to the creativity and the work of the observers and experimentalists. As and the societal support. Certainly, yeah, yeah. Which is, yeah. Which is, uh, but it's, it's kind of a, a myth that, that experimental physics and its interaction with theory is slow. I, I don't, I, I, and there's something I, to be said that, for, for, for taking your time in certain things. For instance, it's important to start planning for and building the next generation of colliders and doing R&D and things like that. But what you precisely want to build and how, what directions you go could change depending on what things come out of the LHC and whether you're going to... And what technology is available. And what technology is available. Yeah, technologies can, can develop, can come out of uh, surprising yeah. places. Yeah, see, I think the perception of uh, things being slow is because we were very spoiled in the mid-20th century, right, before our... Uh, our you know, conscious time in, in, in science, when it just happened to be a moment when there was lots of stuff that just at the surface, at the, at the scale that people were measuring, there were just things happening, lots of things were happening. And so it felt like there was a... Uh, right, right. But, but I would say with the discovery of the cosmological constant, even though it's not as detailed as the things you're talking it's, about... It's amazing. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's one number. Yeah, it's, it's one number, but it's as interesting as a single number can be. I, I would agree. And, and you <laughs> yeah. know, the constraints on primordial gravitational waves is a similar thing. It's one number, right. but it's... You know. I mean, the kind of data that was coming out in the 1960s involved, well, you know, I saw this particle and this particle and this particle, and I put it on a log-log plot, and I got this. But all of that eventually led to one fact, the SU3... Which is beautiful. Which to, is very it's, nice. It's beautiful, right? but it's but really. Uh, but but it's you know we we of course it's not as though these things are competing. It's not like they're mutually exclusive. They're yeah, just all I'm, examples. I'm just, I'm just yeah. talking about the sort of psychological sense mm -hmm. of is are are things slow? And I'm agreeing with you, right? Mm -hmm. that, that I don't I don't think in some fundamental sense um, 
that they're slower. I mean, the great discoveries are coming at a certain rate, and we've yeah, been lucky all enough. All these to dark matter experiments things. of different kinds, you know, it seems. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, listen, when I was uh, when I started graduate school, uh -huh. um, when when you started graduate school, <laughs> when we started graduate school, we were students together. Uh, um, the uh, I, I, uh, dark energy was ridiculous. Uh, well, not ridiculous, but you know, it wasn't wasn't something you'd actually expect to be real. I mean, I, at least I didn't. And it was the supernova stuff that came out later. Right? It was the supernova, and then really solidified by CMB right, around, CMB. Night, around right after we were students. Right after, well, around yeah. the time. But anyway, yeah, that's right. And um, the theorists uh, did not have the uh, right uh, idea. And, and you know, dark matter. Uh, do you remember dark matter? There were the rotation curves of galaxies, and they were like, wow, hmm, I guess maybe, yeah, you know. And it, there was this sort of feeling that maybe there's something there, but it's really changed, right? I mean, the amount of solidity with which we know that has really increased tremendously. And these are great things, right? And I, uh, the majority of the yeah, yeah. energy and matter in the world is this stuff. And the Hubble expansion rate was not known within a factor of two. And you know, That's now right. people Now people are really worried about a little tiny discrepancy. And you look at our, 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 our you can look liter at literal images of the you know, early universe radiation that have you know, changed from you know, and Wilson, where it's just one big <laughs> yes. uniform temperature with a little bit of you know, galactic contamination to Kobe, where you start seeing the, the large-scale fluctuations, to WMAP, where you're seeing tiny, tiny fluctuations in the sky, to Planck, where you can measure not just tiny fluctuations, but the polarization of light, yeah. uh, as well as the, the experiments like BICEP and I was at the seminar where the Kobe results were originally um, uh, announced. And part of the reason I didn't go into astrophysics is I had the feeling that the data there was only corrected within one order of magnitude at best. And so I, that's not the kind of data I like to work with. And then the Kobe results, I remember the error bars were smaller than the dots that they'd printed. Right? It was like, <laughs> my god. I mean, and so that, it's huge changes, right? Yeah, uh, compared, yeah. to, compared to what things were like, even within our scientific lifetime. So, hmm. so I, I don't think things are moving that slowly. I agree with you. I guess we went off on a simple question. <laughs> And finally, another question about consciousness. We, human beings, are part of the universe, and we evolved so that we would want to ask these kinds of questions. So why? Why did the universe develop in such a way that it could look at itself? I just view it as lucky, honestly. I don't, I don't see it as preordained. Both of you are looking at me. Well, the only okay. thing I would say is that, 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 that this, this does, there is a certain selection effect here, which is that the only universes where there are people <laughs> asking this question are ones where this has happened. All the universes where there's no interesting self-organized matter, uh, nobody's asking that question. So, <laughs> so, 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 so I, don't know if the, I don't know what the answer to why would be there or how to pose that question, but you could ask how common it would be, right? So you could ask whether you should expect amongst the incredible number of likely habitable planets that are there in the rest of the universe, whether, uh, if you like, sentient life, self-organized sentient life uh, will come about. So there are people who think about these things. So there's, there's all these people who are interested in, uh, what, what are they called? What's it called? Ex, uh, exobiology? Uh, uh, astrobiology. 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 Right. astrobiology, right? So uh, they're, they're doing very interesting things. So they're, they're, they have the idea that, um, you know, um, uh, during stellar explosions, various kinds of carbon products get formed. They float around in the interstellar space. Then they have the speculation that they sort of, the light from the cosmic microwave background, you know, the kind of thing that uh, uh, you were talking about, 
uh, you know, occasionally produces effects and that there's a natural reaction in some of these uh, gas clouds that produces more complex molecules. And that every once in a while, there's just a chance that these things will begin some process of self-assembly. So there are people who are trying to replicate um, those kinds of conditions in sort of chambers that they make on Earth and then trying to test them to the extent that they can by looking at the atmospheres of exoplanets and thinking about you know, the moons of Jupiter and things like this. So I think the interesting part of that question is really to ask, is it maybe it's generic? Maybe it's a property of matter to eventually produce you know, very complex states, provided you've got energy flowing through it. And you know, these are all, we're not a system in equilibrium. Like we can exist because there's power coming from the sun passing through the earth and somehow that helps uh, some kinds of molecules to self-organize. So I think the interesting question is, is it generic? Right? And that doesn't happen often. And there are people who are trying to answer that question. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the New York Academy of Sciences podcast. This episode was produced by your host, David Hoffman, with administrative and scientific oversight by Dr. Jennifer Costley. It presented a conversation called, What Does the Future Hold for Physics? Is There a Limit to Human Knowledge? Held at the Academy on Tuesday, April 5th, 2016. The moderator was Dr. Jill North of Rutgers University, and it featured Dr. Vijay Balasubramanian of the University of Pennsylvania, Dr. Eva Silverstein of Stanford University, and Dr. Neil Weiner of New York University. Find out more about the Physics of Everything series, of which this conversation was a part, including how you can attend upcoming events at www.nyas.org slash physicsofeverything. Both this podcast and the event it presented were made possible with the generous support of the John Templeton Foundation. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views of the John Templeton Foundation.